So we're in 1 John, and so far in... in, in we already covered the Antichrist. Yes, that's right. That's right. Thank you, Adam. We, we covered the Antichrist. It says that the Antichrist is coming. Before that, we talked about uh, Christians need to admit and confess their sins. We need to walk as Jesus walked. We shouldn't be loving the world or anything in the world. And, and then we, we talked about the beware the Antichrist is coming. And he also said many Antichrists have come. So we talked about that in the last lesson. Uh, I want to pick up in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. And I'm planning to go to chapter 3, verse 9 today to cover that, that material. Uh, Read from New King James Version. It says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. He cannot sin because he's been born of God. So uh, uh, one of the challenges in going through expository uh, teaching is that we have to cover what's in the text and... um, this isn't, it's like when, we're, when we're, we go through the Old Testament, there'll be a story. And so we can mine the story for all the things that are in the story. Here, he's, he's talking about a lot of different things. And each sentence is like a, almost like a new subject. They're all connected to each other. But he's weaving this, this, this uh, uh, tapestry of all these different things he's talking about. He's talking about sin, righteousness, being children of God, the appearing of Jesus, uh, 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 Satan. He's talking about all these things in, in one passage. So this is a this is a challenging passage for me to teach out of. So I want to start off by just looking at the whole passage and saying what are the points that Jesus that that John talks about in this text here. So the points that I see that he's making here, and then we'll we'll take take a few of them in order. Uh, he says we must abide in Him so that we'll have confidence and not be ashamed when he appears. He says we must practice righteousness if we are born of him. 
He said that God must really love us if he's allowed us to be called the children of God. And then he says, the world does not love us because it did not love him. We have our hope in his appearing, and it says that we shall be like him when he appears, and driven by this hope of his appearing, we purify ourselves just as he is pure. Then it says we need to stop sinning and practice righteousness. It talks about sin, that sin is lawlessness, and whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And if we've been born of God, we don't keep on sinning. Whoever sins is from the devil. These things are all in this passage right here. And then it speaks more specifically about Satan. It says Satan has sinned from the beginning. Those who continue to sin are of the devil. And then uh, uh, the other thing I see here says the reason Jesus was manifested was to destroy the works of the devil. So there's no possible way that I could I could even begin to teach on all those things mm. in in one lesson because there's so many different themes in the Bible that are all mentioned and are all tied together here. So I want to pick a few. It starts off. In verse 28, he says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So this is the directive to us is we must abide in him. Now, abide is not a word that I use all the time, abide. And I think it's, the abide is what it was in the, in the King James Version and a lot of the a version since that time have carried that term forward. Somebody says, where do you abide? I say, well, I abide. And I'll give my, give my street address. That's where I abide. That's where I live. Um, so some of the translations will say, instead of saying abide in him, they'll say continue in him or remain in him. Uh, the same word that's used for abide here, just to give you a sense of what it means, I'll give you an, an example of another place in the New Testament where it's used. In Matthew 10, verse 11, uh, this, the same, same word, the same Greek word is used. It says, Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who is worthy and stay there until you go out. So the, the, the stay there is the same word that's used as abide. So it means that's, 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 so it gives me a clearer picture when he says abide in him, that means stay in him, remain in him, continue in him, don't leave him, don't depart. This is the picture. This is what, what it means. And, and if you look at different translations, you get that sense. So it's in that sense of abide, meaning you don't leave. Don't leave the, don't leave the premises. Okay? Um, this is the same expression that is used... By John in John 15, when it talks about abiding in him. This is a famous passage. When we're going through the Gospel of John. We looked at this. Let's take a look again. A lot of things in John's letter, I noticed, tie right back to things in John's Gospel. He'll, he'll, he'll make one phrase or one expression or one sentence and it ties into something significant in there. And John chapter 15 talks about abiding in him. What does that mean? John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean in the word which I've spoken to you. 
Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So when John says, You need to abide in him. He's tying back to a significant teaching of Jesus where Jesus spoke about abiding in him or remaining in him. The image that Jesus gave was he is the vine, we are the branches. The branches have to be stay connected to the vine or they're going to die. You need to to, uh, stay connected, hang on, endure, persevere, no matter what. He says... If you're a vine, if you're a branch that's in the vine, the vine dressers come along and they come along and, and prune you back. You're going to be cut. You're going to be cut so that you can become more fruitful. That doesn't sound like, like much fun. That doesn't sound, that sounds painful to me, okay? That you're going to be cut so that you can be more fruitful. I think this is the suffering that we're put through. But this is the picture, and the alternative is if you don't remain in him, you'll be wither up, die, and be thrown into the fire. And that's a pretty clear image. It's obvious what he's talking about there. You're going to be be cast into hellfire. And abiding in Jesus in this passage means abiding in his love, and it means keeping his commands. That's how Jesus explains it. This is the imagery that he uses. Jesus had not only here, but many places, Jesus and the apostles talk about the importance of Christians enduring, persevering, remaining. They absolutely did not believe or teach that once you become a Christian, you can't lose your salvation. They, they said, no, you must persevere, you must abide, you must endure. Uh, Jesus said in, in uh, Matthew 24, uh, in verse starting verse 9, he told the apostles, he said, they'll deliver you to tribulation, kill you. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Many will be offended, betray each other, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because of the lawlessness will abound. The love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So Jesus said you need to endure, you need to persevere through trials and hardships and temptations and lawlessness and all these terrible things are going to happen. The whole idea of the importance of persevering in the faith is, in my opinion, the main theme of the whole book of Hebrews. That's what it's talking about. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 35. Let's turn there. You have a Bible. This is abiding, remaining, persevering. It's of huge importance to Christians. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 
35, it says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. You have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while he who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. In some translations, the righteous shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of our souls. And Hebrews 11, this is the introduction to Hebrews 11 where it talks about what does it mean to live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. It's a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2. And, uh, it, and then the other, the second part of it is if, if, if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure on him. That's quoting from the Septuagint version of that. Uh, so the, 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 it goes both ways. The righteous will live by faith, but if he shrinks back, I'll not be pleased with him. And then, it's, and the, and then we're, we're giving the examples of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 who persevered through tough times, many of them. Paul makes a similar point to what Jesus said and what it says in Hebrews in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 10. And uh, let's turn there, 1 Corinthians 9, about the importance of abiding or remaining in him. Paul's addressing this to the Corinthians. Christians in Corinth, in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in the race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way you may obtain it. And everyone who competes to the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So, uh, Paul's saying that he is running with the attitude of someone who's beginning a race who is out to win the race. So he's running like a championship runner. He says, I want to make sure I'm not disqualified and I go into strict training to run the race. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. So this is the, the, the picture that he gives is someone who's running as a, as a champion runner who's in strict training. Now, for about maybe you know somewhere between one and ten percent of the population, this is this is encouraging because they think, oh, this is great. I can relate to this. This is I need to. Uh, I hear the I hear the the chariots of fire uh, theme in the background here. You know, I'm I'm getting psyched. I want to run the race. I'm going to run like a champion. And to the other ninety percent of us who who don't who don't re- uh, that doesn't resonate with. This can be a discouraging passage because Paul says he's worried about being disqualified here. And he says, you've got to run like someone out to win the race. And a lot of people will think, I'm not going to win the race. I mean, if I finish the race, I'm doing pretty good. So, so I, I've talked to people who get very <laughs> discouraged by this passage right here. They think, I can't relate to an Olympic champion or somebody who's going to go out and win the marathon, to win the prize like that. 
Maybe and 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 so so much to the point where they think maybe I should just give up now because I'm not I'm not cut out of championship cloth material like maybe Paul was here. And for those who are this is a challenge to all of us we need to persevere and we need to endure. For those who may be in the in the larger group of people who don't think of themselves as championship athletes who can't relate to that particular model. Uh, I'll point you to the to something that Jesus said, which I think will be much more encouraging for the rest of us. Okay, uh, Jesus put the challenge of persevering in the faith in in a much a much more um, a much less intimidating way. I'll say that. Jesus said that when we pray, we should pray, give us today our daily bread. In Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, in Matthew 6, 34, he said, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. So what Jesus is saying is, don't worry about the future. Don't worry about everything else. Just, he said, just just." Be concerned about today, all right? Can you, can you just focus on the things that you need to do today and don't worry about all, the, all this other stuff that's out there? There's a famous uh, uh, author who, who really grabbed onto these principles, and I want to share some, some thoughts from him, and maybe... Nobody in the room has heard of him before, maybe one or two people. It's, uh, but he, he's a hero to me. He was a, a Christian who was thinking of going into the ministry, but he ended up becoming a physician instead. His name is William Osler, and he died just about 100 years ago this month. But he had some very interesting things to say about this. So who was William Osler? Well, he's, he's one of the founders of Johns Hopkins Medical School. He was born in Canada, became a physician, and he had an amazing impact with his life. He revolutionized the teaching and practice of medicine in North America. He was a he read widely and he took the best principles that he saw in Europe and in Asia and in North America and he really changed the way medicine was practiced and taught. Um, to give you one of the things I appreciate him about also is that he had he had a, a lot of humility and each profession has its stereotypes associated with it, and growing up with a, uh, uh, someone who was a doctor in, in uh, my mother's side of the family and hung around with a lot of doctors, I would say, to put it respectfully, humility is not the first characteristic that I associate with people, most people in the medical profession. We have, we have a doctor in, in the house here, and we have uh, someone who's in nursing and, and others in healthcare here. So I'm just saying, I'm an engineer, and I can tell you the stereotype that engineers have. <laughs> David's a lawyer. They have a, they have a stereotype. So, but humility is not something that physicians are typically famous for. And um, so I want to share uh, some, just to give you a feel for who the guy is, and then, t- and then talk about what he did with this concept here. This is some, some of my favorite quotes from, from, from William Osler. He said, the practice of medicine is an art, not a trade, a calling not a business, a calling in which your heart will be exercised equally with your head. Often the best part of your work will have nothing to do with potions and powder, but with an exercise of the influence of the strong upon the weak, the righteous upon the wicked, 
and the wise upon the foolish. So I said, well, this is a rather unusual doctor, okay? He He said he had to his medical students, he said, I have a confession to make. Half of what we have taught you is an error. And furthermore, I can't tell you which half it is. <laughs> so, obviously, he didn't take himself too seriously, all right? He said, humility does not mean putting oneself down. It means knowing your own limitations, knowing that you're not God, you don't know it all, and you cannot heal it all. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is, he, he's, he, he understood that what humility means. Uh, he, uh, this is another quote I think Allison particularly likes, likes this one he said one of the first duties of a physician is to educate the masses not to take medicine so. <laughs> uh, he, said, he also said quit worrying about your health it'll go away <laughs> okay uh, another, a more thoughtful quote than that one he said we're not here to add what to, we're, we're here to add what we can to life, not to get what we can from life. I thought, wow, that's a good, that's a good motto from life. And then I'll leave you with one last one. This is a medical, medical uh, comment that he made. He said, varicose veins are the result of an improper selection of grandparents. <laughs> okay. so, so anyway, so... It, he, he had a sense of humor. He, he had a sense of humility, and, and, he, and he also uh, had a way with words here. So he gave a talk a little over 100 years ago to some students at Yale, and the, the talk was famous, so that it's still in publication, which is amazing over yeah. 100 years later. Wow. Uh, he wrote a textbook. This is hard to imagine. He wrote a textbook. In 1892, which was in print, a medical textbook for over 100 years, and it was used as the standard in medicine for 40 years. I mean, who writes a book that lasts that long? Most, most books are forgotten within a generation. So he gave a talk in 1913. Now, keep in mind, uh, and this will tie into one of the principles, 1913 is a year after the sinking of what famous ship? That's the Titanic. There you go, Adam. So that's, that's good. So There's one year after the sinking of Titanic. It's going to play into the story here. And he was talking to the students, and he said, I want to share with you the secrets of life. Now, this was a guy who was, had tremendous impact with his life, was recognized. Uh, he was uh, in, 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 in many, many ways. Uh, so he was a very famous guy in, in his own day in medicine. One of the founders of Johns Hopkins, uh, a brilliant diagnostician, and uh, he said, "I want to I give you the secrets of life." And he says, first thing you need to understand," and I'm sure no one believed him. He said, "I am a man of average intellect." He said, "The people who know me really well know I'm not a brilliant guy. I'm a very ordinary. I'm a person of very ordinary intellect." So he said, first thing you got to understand that." If you were looking at my life and you're impressed by, by the things that I've done. He said, it, the thing that's made a difference in my life is the habits that I have and the practices that I have. It's not that I have, it's not intellect. Uh, and he says, I'm afraid that when I tell you my secrets that you're going to react the same way that Naaman did when 
when, when Elisha said, oh, if you want to be healed of your leprosy, just go wash in, in, the, in the Jordan seven, seven times. So he, he got angry. That was, wasn't what he was expecting, and he, 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 was all, he was all bent out of shape about that. He says, I'm afraid if I tell you my secrets, you're going to react like that, and you're going to think that this is foolishness. But I'm going to tell you anyway. He said, the secret to life is living life in day-tight compartments. And he talked about this is like you're on an ocean liner, like the Titanic, okay? He said, he was, he talked about a story, he was on an ocean liner, and they're cruising through the Atlantic Ocean, going at, at high speed between, you know, this is before the days of airplanes, so you're, you're, you're going, that's the only way you get back and forth to Europe is going on an ocean liner. And, and he was talking to the captain of the ship, and uh, you know, this is not long after the Titanic went down. He's on another big ship. And the captain said, listen, I'm, I'm really not worried about what happened to the Titanic because all I have to do is push a button or ring a bell. And in very short order, the doors will close, sealing off a number of watertight compartments in the ship. So if the ship was hit by an iceberg or whatever that, uh, or sprung a leak, the damage would be contained and the ship is going to float no matter what. The problem that happened to the Titanic isn't going to happen to this ship. And uh, he used this as an example for life in his own life. He said that this, one of the, his secrets was to live life in daytime compartments, taking the admonition of Jesus, don't worry about tomorrow, and just asking for your daily bread. He says take that literally. And he took those things literally. He said, you know, most people take that statement about Jesus, don't worry about tomorrow, as this is some theoretical, ethereal, you know, Eastern wisdom that no one can actually relate to and put into practice. He said, no, you don't understand. He said, this is a practical thing. This is the way I live my life. And he said, when I go to bed at night, Basically, I bury the day with me. That's it. I don't drag it into the next day. And so he didn't dwell in life on his mistakes, regrets, sorrows, disappointments, or joys of the past. Every day, he poured himself into the events of that day. He didn't worry about the past and didn't particularly worry about the future either. He said, the chief worries of life arise from the foolish habits of looking before and after. So he poured himself into, into every single day, and just for that day. He used an example of a patient who had double vision, who goes to the, to goes to the eye doctor because of, uh, uh, because of unequal uh, uh, movement of the eye muscles. The person finds peace in well-adjusted glasses. Everything comes into focus that they can see the one thing. And he said in the same way, the over-anxious students will find peace when he neither looks forward nor backward to the past or the future, but just looks with a single focus on the events of, of the day. And he, he said, as simple as this is, he said, I attribute a lot of my success in life to the fact that I have lived this way. I put in the teachings a practice uh, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, literally. So, uh, you know, it's, it's ironic to me that of, of all the, the, you know, the radical kingdom Christians who will say, we're 
putting into practice literally everything that's in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we're going to, the teachings on lust, on non-resistance, on permanence of marriage, on, on praying the Lord's Prayer, these things. We're doing these things literally. Well, I've got a challenge. How many people are taking this part of the Sermon on the Mount literally? Where Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Focus on pouring yourself into today. Because if you go through life that way, the whole idea of persevering to the end means persevere through the end of today. And then at the end of the day, dig a hole, bury it, and start a brand new day tomorrow, like William Osler did. He said the best preparation for tomorrow is to is to do today's work superbly well. Yeah. That's it. So uh, uh, bottom line, let's persevere by giving up to abide in Christ one day at a time. And and start with today. Just do a great job today and then tomorrow do the same thing. Forgetting what is behind, as Paul said in Philippians 3, and not worrying about tomorrow, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, 34. Okay? This isn't easy, but I believe if we can make this a habit in our own lives, then it will produce tremendous blessings in helping anyone to persevere to the end. Amen. Let's move on to, to uh, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 29. <clears throat> so I hope that perspective is helpful. First John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now this word righteous causes problems for a lot of Christians. Okay? And why is that? Well, Jesus said, you know, we're reading from Matthew 6.34 what he says right before that. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Jesus says, here's what you should be focusing on. Matthew 6.33, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. He says, this is what you need to be focused on. Don't worry about, don't worry about tomorrow. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, I was, I was uh, in a church for many years which focused a lot more on the first half of this part than the second half of this part. So we need to be focused on both, seeking the kingdom of God and seeking his righteousness. And Jesus had some pretty stiff things to say about righteousness. He started off in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.20. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of people say, well, it's impossible for a righteous to exceed the, 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 the scribes of the Pharisees. He must be talking about putting on the righteousness of Christ, the imputed righteousness, that his righteousness will, when God looks at us, he'll see Jesus, and that we don't actually have to live righteous lives. And why do people say that? You know, uh, let's think about when Jesus said, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, Put it in the context of everything else he said in the Sermon on the Mount. After he said that, 
He addressed righteousness in the areas of anger, hatred, lust, marital unfaithfulness, swearing, greed, materialism, retaliation, and worrying about the future. He hit all those areas. He said, you need to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Then he talked about areas of righteousness, and then he concluded by saying, it's a narrow and difficult road, and there are a few who will find it. And he says that those who call him Lord but don't do what he says, the lawless ones, he says, I will say, I never knew you. So Jesus is expecting us clearly to live by the high standards of righteousness that he laid out there. Now, the big, the big uh, objection that I hear from people, they turn to Romans chapter 3, and they say, well, Paul said, there's no one righteous No, not one. So what do you do with that? We're all unrighteous. We're all, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. There's no unrighteous. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3 and and let's take a look at that and examine that. Let's read the whole thing. It's always good to read it in context. So Paul is quoting from several passages in the Old, Old Testament. The issue he's talking about is the Jews and the Gentiles, two classes of people. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Their throats an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the ways of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So uh, that's pretty That's a pretty uh, strong condemnation of of uh, whoever it's talking about there. He says, no one is seeking after God. Well, let's think about that in light of the other scriptures. Does that mean that there's no individual who's seeking God? In Hebrews 11.6, it says, God, anyone who comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It says, if you want to come to God, Two things you have to believe. You have to believe he exists, and you have to believe he rewards those who seek him. So are there people who are seeking God? Yes. If you don't believe that, you you can't come to God yourself. There are definitely people who are seeking God, and and God looking for people, and he rewards those who seek him. In Psalm 119, it says, With my whole heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. So are there people who seek God? Yes. It says, there, it says in this passage, there's no one seeking God. Does it mean no individuals? No. It says they're all deceitful. What did Jesus say when Nathanael approached him in John 1.47? He said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. It says that there's no one who does good and no one who fears God. What does it say about Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Cornelius is described as a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. 
So can we say that there's no one who fears God? There's no one who does good? There's no one who seeks God? Of course not. Paul's talking about two classes of people. It's an indictment of the Jews as, as a class. Not, not saying that there are no individuals who seek God, who do good, or to fear God. Um, I mean, Jesus taught the same thing as himself, that there were righteous people in the past. He said all the righteous blood shed on the earth from Abel to Zechariah is going to come on that generation. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter talks about Noah. He said he was a preacher of righteousness. He talks about Lot, and he says that Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his righteous soul. And the point that Peter is making is, Just as God saved a righteous few people, Noah and and his family, in the the midst of a corrupt generation there, and just as he pulled Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah and saved him, a righteous man, that we can have confidence that if we are righteous, that God will save us too. That's the point that he's making. We need to be living righteous lives and have confidence that just as God did that in the past, he'll do the same thing for us. James points to the example of Elijah as being a righteous man. When he says, he points to the example of Elijah's prayers, and he says, the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. Hebrews 12, it says that we need to seek peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see God. We need to be living holy lives. That's what it's talking about. We don't just have the the holiness of Jesus stuck on us and we can leave ungodly lives. We need to be living righteous lives following the example of Jesus. 1 John 3, verses 1-3, to it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. The world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, And it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. The life of a Christian is to walk as Jesus walked, to be refined by our trials, and to become more and more like Christ. That's the challenge before us. And if we become more like Christ... The world will treat us more and more the same way that they treated Jesus. Mm -hmm. The world did not recognize him. They won't recognize us either. John starts off the Gospel of John in 1 John chapter 1. He said he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. He was not received by the Jews, his own people. But as many as received him, to to them he gave the right to become children of God. Those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of human flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. So these are the children that he's talking about. Uh, If we follow Jesus, we will be treated as he was treated. How was Jesus treated? In general, not very well. He was, he was insulted, he was mocked, he was hated, and he was crucified. In John chapter 15, he said to, his, to the apostles, If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. 
because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. The world hates you. Remember the words I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they kept my words, they'll keep your all skiers also. So a student, when he's fully trained, will be just like his teacher. If we grow up to be like Christ, the world will treat us like Christ. If we reject the world, the world will reject us. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that if people are upset with me, that it's because that's a sign of my righteousness. I'm going to need to stop and check. Plenty of times during my life as a Christian, people have been upset with me because of sin in my life, not because I was so much like Jesus. So we've got to make sure we're not fooling ourselves and thinking that we're being persecuted. Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's the, we've got to remember the last part, for right, persecuted for being righteous. The fact that we're persecuted, if we're persecuted for being sinful that, or, or unloving, that's, there's, no, there's no honor in that. It's for, if only if we're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. So, but, however, we also have to realize that if we're bringing the light of truth into the world, and if we're following the example of Jesus, there's no way we can do that in such a nice way to avoid people hating us and being persecuted if we're really bringing the light and the truth. Jesus couldn't do it, the apostles couldn't do it, and we can't do it either, so, so don't even try. I want to close looking at the last point here is why Jesus came. Now you think, well, this isn't obvious why Jesus came. Um, in 1 John 3, 7 and 9, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of Man was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, he cannot sin because he's been born of God. 1 John 3, verses 7 to 9. The question I ask people from time to time, why did Jesus have to come? Why did Jesus come? And the most common answer that I would get, I was in a church that focused a lot on, on evangelism, why did Jesus come? Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Now that's true. Why did Jesus come? Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for money. many. So that's another way. Jesus answered the question, why did he come? He came to seek and save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's talking about the, the crucifixion, about the cross. Um, Paul, Paul answered the question in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So these are all different ways of answering the question, Why did Jesus come? Uh, 1 John 3, 5, we just read this. Uh, you know he was manifested to take away our sins. And then the last one, which seems different from all the others. In 1 John 3, 8, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
Now, when I ask people, why did Jesus come? I almost never get this answer here. I usually get one of the other ones, not this last one here. He came to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. But that's what John says. So, all these different answers about why Jesus came, are they really different answers, or are they different ways to describe the same thing? Okay, I think there's the different ways of describing the same thing, but, it's, but if we want to get the complete picture, we'll understand this from all sides. Now, most people in, in this country who are, who, are, who are believers present the gospel as a story basically involving two players, us and God. And here's how the gospel is presented. God's perfect and he created mankind, first of all, Second of all, mankind rebelled against God in sin, separating ourselves into God and putting ourselves in a terrible situation. We have a big problem. And then the third part is God fixes our problem, solves our problem, by sending his son to pay the price for our sins and redeem us. And by believing in him, we can get out of the problem that we've made for ourselves by our own sin. Okay, that's generally how the gospel is presented. Jesus is the answer to solve the problem that we've gotten ourselves into. Okay, that is a totally incomplete picture. If we understand all the reasons why Jesus came, the Son of Man came to destroy Satan's work, well, where does that fit in there? It doesn't fit. If we want to understand the real picture of the gospel, you can't understand it unless you understand there are three players. There's us, there's God, and there's Satan in the story. That Satan was involved in tempting man and leading man into sin in the beginning. And that as one of the results of the fall of man is that Satan took us captive as his prisoners as a result of sin. That Jesus was a ransom. He paid the price. He came to be a ransom. Now, who do you pay the ransom to? Somebody, somebody kidnaps your child. Who do you pay the ransom to? You pay the ransom to the bad guy, right? So he came to pay the ransom to ransom us from Satan's bondage. Satan is all over the New Testament. All over the New Testament. Uh, Jesus is tempted by Satan. He, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I was there. I saw it happen. Uh, Jesus, it says that Satan came into Judas, that, that Satan tempted Jesus for the, the 40 days he was in the wilderness after he was baptized. And then it talks about the three specific temptations at the end. In the parable, the sower in Luke 8 says that the sower is is sowing the word of God. The word of God is the seed and the first soil. Those who on the wayside hear, but the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So people who don't believe the gospel, why don't they? Maybe we're not presenting it effectively enough, but... Jesus also says it's Satan is taking it away, is blinding them. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul's talking about the Jews, those who hear the gospel but don't accept it. It says, our gospel, for our gospel is veiled. It's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, which is referring to Satan, has blinded 
who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of glory, the image of God, should shine on them. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, he prays that people will come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil who's taken them captive Mm. to do his will. This is the picture that Satan has enslaved people. He's captured them to do his will. Passage in Acts 26, I, I, I think of all the time when Paul is recounting to King Agrippa the story of his own conversion when Jesus spoke to him, and he tells him what Jesus said. Jesus said to Paul, this is Acts 26, verse 17, he says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So that's how Jesus explains the gospel. Taking people from the power of Satan and pulling them out, liberating them to the, into, the, into the power of God to bring, bring them from darkness into light. So Satan is all over the New Testament, but he's hardly mentioned in the Old Testament. In, in Genesis chapter 3, he's involved in the fall of man and introducing sin into the world. In Job, he, he comes and he taunts God that uh, you know, the, only reason, the only reason that Job loves you and obeys you is because you're taking such good care of him. But you take away the goodies and he'll curse you to your face. Mm-hmm. Satan appears there. One or two other places in the Old Testament, maybe, but considering the, the vast amount of material in the Old Testament, seems like he's hardly mentioned in the Old Testament at all. Or is he? I believe he's hidden in the Old Testament. And if we look carefully, we'll see Satan described very accurately in there. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul explains that the whole Exodus journey is a map of the Christian life. That the water that the people passed through represents baptism. They were all baptized in Moses and the cloud and the sea. The, 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 the pillar of the cloud and fire is the Holy Spirit. The water that the people passed through, there's a wall of water on each side to escape bondage is baptism. And the 40 years in the wilderness, in the desert, is the Christian life, and those who are righteous and make it all the way through, make it to the promised land. But he doesn't explain all the details in this story. And I ask people many times, say, okay, if this is a map of the Christian life, and baptism represents, the Red Sea represents baptism, what do you think Egypt represents? Well, it's the life before you're baptized. And what do you think Pharaoh represents? Who do you think Pharaoh represents? And everybody says, well, Pharaoh must represent Satan. Uh, Cyprian said the same thing. He's an early Christian writer writing around the year 250 in Ananias Fathers, volume 5, page 500. He talks about this. And he says, you know, in the story of the Exodus, that Satan is foreshadowed by Pharaoh and the old world. The old life is foreshadowed by Egypt. So if that's the case, and I think it pretty clearly is, it gives us a pretty clear picture of Satan and and, and what's going on here. He is the tyrant who has enslaved people and will not let them go. 
The people are in bondage, crying out to God for a deliverer. He offers them, he gives them slavery, but he does have some very tasty food in his kingdom. Whereas God offers manna that people sometimes get bored of. Okay? He was a murderer from the beginning. The story of Pharaoh starts off, he's killing thousands of babies. And he's the master of the bait and switch. He keeps changing. He doesn't deliver on any of his promises. Okay? Only after the Passover lamb is slain is there a way to escape from his bondage and control. The only way out is through the water, through baptism. And that the same water that saves and delivers God's people destroys the forces of Satan. Satan may be hidden from us in view today, and I think he likes it that way here in this country. It serves his purpose to be out of, out of sight, out of view, and have no one talking about him. But Jesus says we need to be praying every day. Give us today our daily bread and deliver us from the evil one. Satan wants people, every time they see something bad happening, to think, God must be causing this. I wonder why God's allowing this to happen. Maybe God really isn't a good God, despite all the horrible things that he's doing, just like he did to Job. He wants to masquerade that he's our friend. He's the one who has the goodies. He's the one who's going to make you happy. But he's a liar, and he just wants to enslave you. People talk about people who are addicted to pornography or addicted to alcohol. I prefer to use the term enslaved because it reminds us that we are enslaved by an enslaver. Satan is behind us. Um, you know, I, I, Allison knows this. Sometimes it's hard to know what God wants, wants us to do. And so sometimes I'll, I think, well, I don't know what God wants me to do. Let me stop and think, what does Satan want me to do right now? And, and then I think, well, I'll do the opposite of that, and I'm, I'm probably in pretty good shape. Somehow, sometimes that's an easier question for me to answer. So let's remember, he is a liar. He's the father of lies. And we must combat his temptations and lies with light and truth and the word of God, just as Jesus did. We need to pray every day, deliver us from the evil one. As Peter said, we must be aware of Satan's schemes. And never forget when presenting the gospel to people, the reason the Son of Man came was to deliver us from sin to ransom us from sin, to pay the price, and also to destroy the works of the devil. Amen.